As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me is my friend and a voice you're familiar with, Christian Joseph. And today, I know I say this every time, but I mean it. I have someone who I consider a teacher. I was fortunate to meet at a conference in Montreal. And welcome, Professor Dr. Matteo. To the first time to The Malcolm Effect, how are you? Thanks, Mamadou. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. You're doing a great work. Uh, the list, you know, everybody's listening to us. I have to say they have to continue spread the word about your podcast, guys. It's really, really important. <laughs> Thank you so much. So let's go straight into it. And I'm going to ask a question that hopefully we can unpack. But first and foremost, it lays the groundwork. What are sanctions? Yeah, that's the most basic questions that you could ask. And I think if we were, if I was to provide a definition, I would say that uh, sanctions are uh, economic coercive measures which are deployed to discipline or punish those uh, actors, whether state actors or non-state actors, that uh, aim or dare to challenge and question the hegemonic or dominant role of the US-controlled financial market, or, if you allow me, what I would prefer to call, following uh, the third world, this Marxist tradition, when they aim to challenge US-led imperialism. So you are able to deploy these measures when you have a range of control over the financial system that allows you to do that. And this is part of the bigger scheme of imperialism. So immediately what we understand then is sanctions on of specifically US imperialism. That's correct. That is right. Yes. Thank you very much. So then in speaking about the specifics then, how do sanctions work? work? What are the mechanisms that allow the US in particular to deploy and put countries under sanctions? Yeah. So I think we have to go back uh, uh, a little bit into history to understand how the so-called, the, the financial system in which we are nowadays, although it's changing, but anyway, the, the, the supremacy of the US, of US-led imperialism was created in the aftermath of World War II. So after World War II, the U.S. consolidated its political and financial leverage of worldwide, becoming a major imperialist power. Now, at that time, the U.S. was a creditor to France and Britain during the war, and it tried to uh, it attempted to restructure the world in the wake of the deficit-driven withdrawals of European colonialism from Africa and Asia. Now, this task to re to reshape the world under the control of the U.S. required the reliance on the interrelated realms of trade and military expansion. 
what Samir Amin in a beautiful essay on contemporary imperialism in a, published in a monthly review calls the two legs of imperialism, the political leg and the economic leg. Now, on matters of trade, what you see is that uh, the US administration, the post-war Truman administration, established an open door policy, which basically meant the elimination of trade and financial barriers and, you know, a with uh, exclusive uh, trading blocks and restrictive policies of every sort, okay? Now, these trade arrangements were portrayed as facilitating uh, neutral freedom of enterprise and international exchange, and they, in fact, represented an an, what we would call an um, Americanization of the global system, sort of Coca-Colaization of the American system, reflecting U.S. capital needs as they existed in the 1940s. Now, what happens in the 1940s with the, the, the Bretton Woods agreements after World War II? You see the creation of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which regulated the world trade under a common currency, the U.S. dollar, okay? Now, this was important, as we say, because uh, the economic leg or trade was related also to the military plan, because at the same time, while uh, these uh, economic plans were developing and the international financial institutions were created, you were also seeing increasing military coordination with the receding British imperialism, which allowed U.S. corporations a preferential access to, for example, key resources or key, very key resources, like oil. And this is where we see that as the US and the Western world acquires more and more control and leverage in the financial system, then it needs to form certain allies. For example, take the Arab region, which occupied a unique role in the geostrategy of of US-led imperialism, especially due to its oil wealth. Being a key natural resources for the imperialist countries, the best means was to guarantee access via political control of the region. So you have a very, you know, close relationship between the US and the Gulf monarchies. And why is this so important? Because it's not the question of oil per se as a key element running the whole world or the show of the financial market, but the supremacy of the dollar, sorry, the oil-rich Gulf monarchies guaranteed the supremacy of the US dollar at the international level through dollar-denominated oil sales. So when countries like Iran, Iraq, Libya, which are very rich countries in terms of oil resources, they dare to use these resources to promote a vision of the world, a regional vision, a regional project, or a national project that contradicts, questions, challenge. U.S. interest, that's where you can start imposing sanctions on one of these countries. Why? Because what you can do is basically first impose an oil embargo, for example, or you can use your domination at the level of technology. So, for example, you can impose an embargo on the spare parts needed by a certain sector which is so fundamental into the economy of this country, to, uh, and you basically you do not allow them to repair, to renovate, or to keep up this industry at the pace needed to survive and to promote their political vision. But this is just one example. 
Thank you so much for providing that historical context, that important historical context. And even though you situated us in history of kind of how US hegemony developed, you're speaking to our contemporary time in that when we see these countries now moving towards de-dollarization, you understand why that is the case because US hegemony and US imperialism, as you said, is backed up through US through the dollar basically. And I find that really important. So when we see these countries going from I mean, I mean, I don't know if you saw Marco Rubio so arrogantly said, you know, these countries are moving away from the dollar. You know, we can we can forget about sanctions. <laughs> and straight away, you know, you thought to yourself, they're saying the quiet part out loud. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. So right. thinking about the specifics then, when we see, you know, we know Cuba has an embargo, we know that yeah. China, Iran, what are sanctions for once again? Is it that they, they want? Yeah. Because I know they say we're trying to punish the governments, but all too often it's the people on the ground who are punished. So can you give examples of what are the specific impacts of sanctions are on those countries that are sanctioned? Two things, uh, Mamadou, because this is, uh, if I would break down your question into two, the first one is uh, why are sanctions are imposed? So you have a control. I mean, you can impose sanctions because you, con- you have a degree of control of the financial system that allows you to leverage, to leverage it for your own interest. That's one. That's, the, that's what we talked about. The second point is why are sanctions imposed? Sanctions are certainly an coercive economic measure. But at the same time, as you rightly were pointing out, they are imposed on con- for political reasons. So when we look at sanctions, we tend to think of sanctions as uh, ec- you know, purely economic measures. But we always have to think of sanctions as uh, measures that are deployed to stop the possibility that a different political project emerges. So when the sanctions are imposed, there is always a political war undergoing and also an ideological war undergoing. Because none of all the countries that you mentioned, whether it's uh, Iran, whether it's Cuba, whether it's China, you need to switch the TV for one second and you need to start hearing the kind of news that you know are constantly reported and the way these countries are depicted. And then they start with all this uh, long list of adjectives which goes from uh, rogue, authoritarian, communist, and uh, anything that basically allows the Western governments and US imperialism to justify ideologically the reasons why we are going to impose this type of sanctions on, on, uh, on a country that is, on the other hand, is simply trying to gain its own independence. Because the idea of imperialism is to create precisely this dependency, whether it's technological, whether it's in terms of resources and uh, material and, and uh, yeah, it's technological resources, educational. You can, you, you, imperialism wants to create a dependency for countries of the global south. So the moment these countries try to face up to this or challenge this, obviously they are going to find, they are going, they can be under sanctions. Now you mentioned the uh, I will give you an example that is probably one of the most tragic of, uh, of the history of sanctions when it comes to, to the Middle East. The case of Iraq, for example. Iraq, whose government was purp- purposely you know, depicted as, as a rogue country, terror- sponsoring terrorism, authoritarian and all that, 
without entering the internal contradictions that the Iraqi government had, what you see is that sanctions were imposed by the US and the UN from the, and this is a very important also detail to add, that with the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, what you have is the so-called sanctions decade. Basically, the US allows the UN as a uses the UN as a tool to impose sanctions everywhere they want, whether it's Yugoslavia, it's Somalia, it's Iraq, it's Libya, Iran, everywhere. So from 1990s to 2003, the sanctions were imposed on Iraq. Now, why one of the rationale that guided the imposition of sanctions was that any goods that could be used by the civilians, by also the military, were going to be embargoed by the UN. So basically what you're saying is that any infrastructure, imagine that any type of infrastructural uh, service like electricity, roads, telephones, construction equipment, vehicles, anything, has a civilian use, certainly, but it can also have a military use, no? So the decision was to impose almost a blanket denial, regardless of the hardship that the civilian population would would bear, And this is indeed what happened. Just a little example would be, we allow medicines in, okay? That's fine. But we do not allow the refrigerators and the trucks needed for the cold chain, without which the medicines become unusable. Similarly, again in Iraq, take uh, in 1993, the UN World Food Program and the uh, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, reported, if I am correct, that the sanctions... We're, af- we're creating uh, persistent uh, hunger, malnutrition for the vast majority of the, of the population, especially children, to the point that Kofi Annan in, in 1997 noted that 31% of the children under the age of five suffered, suffered ma- from manu- manu- mal- malnutrition. Now, what you're seeing is that basically you are bo- blocking, you are actually creating, uh, you, you are punishing the population. Indeed, you are, pla- you are punishing the population. And this is fundamental to say about sanctions. But we should never forget that sanctions do also affect the governments because they do affect the certain type of political vision that the same governments are trying to put forward. And they change then the composition of the government, which they become uh, more repressive because they are under the geopolitical threat of war, or there is a class composition and the government becomes opening up, for example, abandons socialist ideals. We have seen that in the case of Libya. Venezuela has really struggled to maintain that, uh, that kind of control over the economy, but still nonetheless is doing it. So this is the kind of range of and type of, uh, of effects that sanction can have on the population. But uh, this can be really varied. I just mentioned the case of Iraq, but we have all kinds of examples that we could go through. No, thank you so much. And I think what you're speaking to about the internal contradictions of certain countries or these countries' political projects being stunted by sanctions. Whenever we hear, like, let's say what happened in Iran recently, or we hear, you know, what the Western media quotes what happens in these so-called authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. They never, so when you hear, listen to Iranian women, for example, or listen to the center Cuban voices, the question never becomes in in the liberal media and corporate media, but why don't we say the primary contradiction is lifting of the sanctions wow. if you really want to help those people and the citizens in those countries? And I find that it really speaks to the hypocrisy of liberals because why is it, and I want to ask, I want to put it to you. Why mm-hmm. do you think that 
in the imaginary of liberals, economic sanctions seem to be the lesser of two evils or <laughs> a better alternative and a better punishment than, let's say, boots on the ground? This is a great question, you know, and I think because uh, we we tend to think this is really, I mean, there is a, a sort of, uh, probably there is something to do with the emotional idea that, uh, you know, we are not bombing them. We are just using uh, the financial economic means that are subtle. And so in a way, the violence of imperialism is less and we feel good about it, you know. This is where, you know, we really, we cannot relate to the violence that an economic system can can do or the, the, the leverage of certain uh, measures can do to a country of the global south. I think this is related also to the fact, and uh, because I think it's important to say it, to the fact that there has been a complete obliteration of a certain tradition of thinking, which is the... You know, it's a it's a it's a, a tradition of thinking that has to do with understanding the world not simply through identity politics, you know, or race, but also understanding the world through political economy. So you find that many liberals, most of the time, are completely oblivious to the fact that the domination of the world takes place through an economic system and a material exploitation which can, you know, which is, uh, you know, a material relation of exploitation between countries of the North and the South, certainly. But it also takes place to a process of class collaboration between ruling classes in the core and the neo-colonial bourgeois in the periphery. So, and then what you see is that basically you have uh, this extraction and control of resources in the South which uh, depends more and more on the degree imperialist countries, in collaboration with the neocolonial classes, the ruling classes in the periphery, to on the degree they both oppress and exploit their working classes. And this is where you see that uh, when uh, military domination is just one of the ways, is I call this the imperialist arsenal, you know, and... Uh, Military domination is just one of the ways you can think about uh, controlling a country of the South. Or because uh, you can, for example, prevent them from accessing technological resources, as we were saying before, or harnessing their internal resources for the purpose of regional and popular development. This is the case, you know, this is where we need to see sanctions in continuity with other forms of, uh, of war. So why do we like sanctions? Well, you know, because we we don't just like sanctions. We think, and this is where we go back, I think, full square to the point of uh, this is not an economic war, it's a political and ideological war, to the fact that Western countries believe that they are exceptional, that they play a sort of, they incarnate a sort of missionary and colonial role in the world that justifies the policies that they can take, that then they, they undertake. Yeah, to kind of follow up on, you know, the, the aspect of looking at the world through political economy, you know, I know that your work is focused on understanding, you know, sanctions as a type of warfare and that there's, I guess you could even say there's a, a dialectical relationship between, you know, the war, war and the economy. So what is the function of war as a productive and financial process? War... uh 
two points and this is again we need to produce we need we we can proceed historically to see the difference so war can be a military tool to for example uh, install a puppet regime in a certain country so imperialism comes is not happy with the government that is controlling that specific state because that government is not towing the line of the imperialist interest. So imperialism, US imperialism, comes in, creates a war, intervenes militarily, and in that moment what you have is the installation of a puppet regime that is more in tune, more aligned with US interest. This has been one of the functions that war had in the past. And we can give many examples. For example, the Iraq invasion in 2003, that was an attempt to do that when uh, the you know the previous government was completely obliterated and then they decided to put somebody com- shipped directly from Washington the function of war nowadays instead is different and it connects more to the fact that uh, we are seeing a change at the geopolitical level so war becomes a form of accumulation has always been a form of accumulation but a form of accumulation by by destruction So in other words, I don't go for war in order to install a puppet government that is is going to open up the economy and is going to allow my own corporations to come in. No, I go inside the country to create a perpetual, a constant situation of war, which then feeds what? The military-industrial complex. So war becomes a a form of... uh, of production by itself. It creates the opportunity. It's not a tool to reach something else. It's uh, It becomes an end per se. And so in this way, war becomes uh, a sphere of production because uh, it creates, uh, the, it's not just the financial spin-offs that it creates, whether it's, uh, you know, for the military industrial complex, but it literally destroys the people and the country in which war is taking place. And this is very, very important. Now, in my work, I talk a lot about Libya. When in 2011, Libya was destroyed, you are not just creating a financial opportunity for a military-industrial complex of the West to come in and arm the different groups. You are also destroying a political project, again, the sovereignty of a country. And by doing that, you are basically undermining the organizational capacity that both a country of the global south could have to challenge imperialism. Could, uh, since you mentioned Libya, and that's like a focus of your work, would you mind giving a historical account of the various sanctions that Libya has experienced since 1969 and how these sanctions have changed with significant periods in uh, Libya's history? I think it would be really great for our listeners to you know, kind of understand the relationship that Libya has had to the West, as well as other countries in the global South during its history. Yeah, uh, sure, Chris. So the the U.S. government, Libya, yeah, the U.S. the U.S. government was the first one to impose sanctions on Libya, and this happened in 1979 when Libya was the first state to be named as sponsor of terrorism under the 1979 Export Administration Act. Now, under the terms of that law that was in place back then, Libya was prohibited from from receiving U.S. exports of military and dual-use goods. 
US bilateral assistance, as well as loans from international financial institutions. For example, just to give you an example, the the US administration of Jimmy Carter sanctioned the sale of 400 million 400 million in trucks, aircraft and and, uh, and spare parts as an effort to be said by the US administration to discourage Libya from harboring international terrorists. Now, why was Libya considered uh, a state sponsoring uh, terrorism in 1979? Uh, we have for for those, you know, for our listeners, it probably would be useful to say that in 1969, you have a revolution in Libya, which is uh, called the Halfata Revolution, the opening revolution. It's, a revolu- it's an anti-colonial and anti-imperialist revolution since Libya from 1951, after the, Italian col- the genocidal Italian colonization. In 1951, Libya has its own called independence, which means basically that the UN creates a state of three different regions previously controlled by France, G- Italy, and Britain, and puts them together and allows the monarch, uh, the king, Senussi, to rule the country. Now, Senussi is what you would call was al- someone who was uh, aligned with the interest of the UK, the US, uh, basically US imperialism and the, and, uh, and the Western and uh, the European allies. In 1969, a group of uh, young officers from the military academy takes control, decides to, to overthrow the government and they install themselves on power, in power, and they pursue an anti-colonial and anti-imperialist vision of a, a, a political project. So one of them, how does this uh, political vision translates materially, how it is uh, implemented? Well, you see that, uh, for example, Libya in, uh, and, and you know, I work a lot with the unclassified documents by the CIA. You see that uh, Libya, uh, for example, over, over a period uh, of three decades from 73 to the 1990 paid over a total of 12 million to the Irish Republican Army. But that was not the only group that was supported. You take any, any CIA government uh, and you will see that Libya is considered to be adopting a policy of uh, subversive activity and support for national liberation movements in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Then what you see is that Libya is uh, financing Palestinians' factions, Palestinian revolutionary factions against the Zionist entity. So basically, and uh, Israel had a very crucial role for the US in the Arab region. Why? Because together with the Gulf, Israel became effectively a US military outpost in the region. From 1948 until until the mid-1973, Israel had received the sum of over, I think, 8 billion in economic assistance which basically meant $3,500 for each Israeli. And this is very important. Why? Because uh, basically an average Israeli each year received at that time in aid alone more than double of the per capita income of an Egyptian, which was under $2 in 1969. So when Libya starts arming all these groups, all these movement, national liberation movements, the U.S. comes in and, st- and says, hold on a second, you are not towing the line as we want. 
you are supporting terrorism. And this is where I say that there's always an ideological war when sanctions are imposed, because there is always an attempt to undermine politically and ideologically a certain political project. And that creates the ground to impose sanctions. So, and we go back to the sanctions. 1979, you have first a technological embargo and also an educational embargo. Now, why this is important? Because in the 60s and the 70s, the US had what we'd call a technological monopoly on, uh, on aviation and oil sector. And Libya, under the, from the, in the, throughout the 1950s up to the 69, its own oil industry had been created and built through American technological equipment. So the moment you embargo this equipment, you are going to hit the economy because uh, they don't have the capacity to restructure immediately that industry. They need, the, they need those spare parts. Another sector that was uh, heavily affected was aviation. Why was aviation so important? Because again, we go back to the weight of history. You have Italian genocide under colonialism. Then you have a government that is way strictly aligned to the interests of the, of, of the US and the West. By the 1969, what you see is that Libya does not have that uh, required skill, uh, skill workers to, to be employed, the required skill workers to be employed in these technological sectors, which were heavily controlled and managed by Western corporations. So the moment you put an embargo, the aviation is important. Why? Because it allows you to bring in Western foreign workers. So the moment you, br you put an, uh, an embargo on the spare parts uh, of the aviation sector and the aviation industry, this has a strong impact on your economy because you cannot bring any more foreign workers in. And, and then, you know, what you see is that this... Uh, this uh, the the sanctions uh, gradually change because if you had unilateral sanctions in the nineteen in the in the nineteen seventies and then in the nineteen eighties, you also have the the unilateral sanctions become multilateral sanctions uh, in the nineteen nineties. Why? Because in the nineteen nineties, as I was saying before, the Soviet Union collapsed, so there is no more balancing of power at the at the geopolitical level, and the U.S. is able to you know, to gather the support of each and every country and use the UN as a tool to impose countries as they see fit. So by the, the, the multilateral sanctions in the 1990s become uh, way more, they branch out way more than they used to, than the, 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 the previous ones. In this case, what you see is uh, that there is a, an embargo on Libya imposed. There is a, a freeze on foreign currency and foreign reserves. And also a, a, a check and control and embargo on the spare parts. But by the 1990s, Libya is able to overcome this, but only by buying, for example, spare parts through deals in the black market, where is the country where the you know state the state is actually charged 90%, if even 100% more to buy parts that he could that they could buy in the normal market if sanctions were not there. So. You know, and then when you block the foreign currency reserves, that means that you cannot make financial transactions into the world market because you are not allowed to use this these foreign reserves. So that means that Libya needs to go and and uh, use its uh, 
you know, its reserves internally. This can create debt within, within the country. And most importantly, this is where sanctions uh, link to monetary imperialism, you create inflation. Because uh, Libya, during the 90s, uh, the inflation went up to 90 to to 90, if I am correct, it uh, it reached the level of uh, 200% above the usual level. Consumer goods, the price increase, the, the sorry, the, the price of consumer goods increased 200% above their usual ev- level. So this is very important because you are cheapening not just the life of people, you are cheapening also their currency. But this was uh, possible, why? Because the U.S. had complete control of the financial system. When you come to, you, you know, you fast forward and you see now the sanctions being posed on Russia, this is not working anymore. So, so I kind of wanted to circle back to a question Mobadou had asked earlier about, you know, the liberal view on sanctions and seeing them as a more humane response or, or a more humane interaction with countries in the global south as opposed to direct warfare. And I think to take it a step further with regime change and economic regime change, oftentimes in the West, we get a narrative that 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 is what the people in a particular country want, that there's this sort of manufactured consent, you know, on the part of Western powers. And as you had said earlier, right, that in fact, these changes in economic regimes are more and th- these changes to uh, financial orientations that are in line with Western powers are more, more in, in line with, say, the bourgeoisies of th- that are in that are of that are in the global South, as opposed to the masses of people. Then how do we get sold the message that it's actually the masses of people that want this regime change, that want um, these uh, various uh, uh, interventions? That's a good question, and uh, this is where the entire this is where we need to see sanctions. We go back to what you both uh, were uh, talking, and you asked me before. This is where we go. We need to go back to to see sanctions as uh, one of the many forms of warfare of the imperialist arsenal. It's uh, sanctions act as a form of economic warfare, but uh, that supplants or complements the use of other form of warfare well, of warfare whether they are military and or non now this is very important because uh, when uh, you for example uh, undermine the economy of a country through the imposition of sanctions you create unrest it's inevitable that, that that's that's always been the goal because you are tightening the belt of the working classes of the people that are suffering on an, on a on a daily basis but at the same time, it would be really absurd to think of sanctions as operating to, to single them out as a form of warfare. Why? And I take two examples, very in time-wise, very different, but we can even put Russia into this, which is not a country of the global south, yet it's a country that is threatening the hegemony of the US. So when sanctions in the 1990s, the UN sanctions were imposed on Libya, what you see is that in the 90, in 1986, and Libya was on U.S. sanctions. Let's go back a little bit. In, in the 1986, Libya was under UN, U.S. unilateral sanctions. In 1986, Libya is directly bombed. What I'm trying to say is that 
economic sanctions never work alone. They always operate vis-a-vis covert actions, military bombings, or the mobilization of the UN Security Council. So what you're in this case, you saw a direct military bombing. In the 1990s, when the, U, uh, the unilateral become multilateral sanctions, you see what? You see the CIA and the MI6 directly funding groups, the opposition groups within Libya. This is where, in fact, the so-called Libyan Afghans, that those who, were, who fought as Mujahideen in Afghanistan, funded by the U.S., come back to the country and they now want to overthrow the government. This happens in, nine, in the period between the 1993 and 90, up to 1997. This happened also with Venezuela recently. What did we see? The imposition, the imposition of sanctions from, uh, from Obama, which then escalated under Trump. And who did we see being funded lavishly by the U.S.? as an opposition leader, in order to undermine the government. And we also know of the presence of U.S. mercenaries who tried to enter Venezuela, which were, you know, funded by the U.S., but who the U.S. is trying to, to support too. Why, though? To the point that he, you know, deliberately called himself the president of Venezuela. The same thing when it comes to Russia now is that we have to see when, you know, what's happening in, U- in Ukraine is that... Uh, Sanctions are imposed on Russia, yes, but the sabotage of the pipeline of Nord Stream 2 is part of this larger war because you are trying to disconnect Russia from Europe. So all these measures that are put in place create the necessary ideological ground for eventually mobilize the UN Security Council, as it happened uh, in Iraq in 2003, when the U.S. government imagined this, guys, they went to the U.N. and they deliberately lied about the fact that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction and they destroyed an entire country. They just literally lied. What happened in Libya in 2011? After all these years, Libya gets out of the sanctions. In 2011, there were obviously internal contradictions. Some people were not completely happy with the, with the policies or the political course that the government was taking. But at the same time, we can now say, because this is the power and the weight of history now, in 2023, 12, uh, 12 years after the, military, the NATO-led military regime change operation in Libya, that... Uh, these uh, groups were directly funded by, by the Western powers. There were military troops on the ground from Qatar to the UK to many other countries. And most importantly, there is the ideological factor that plays internally, which is what? The moment you embargo a country for a decade, it is inevitable, inevitable that the population is going to start thinking or to aspire for a way of life that is more aligned to the West. But this is where we need this kind of conversation, this kind of programs, you know, where we reflect on these dynamics. Because in doing so, and this is something that I do in my book, for example, that uh, I recently published, uh, The Everyday Politics of the Libyan Arab Jamairia, in one of the chapters, for example, I directly discuss the fact that... uh, by the 2000s, many Libyans wanted a lifestyle that aligned 
with Western ideals of consumerism, choice, agency. But in doing so at the same time, they had completely forgotten that uh, if their own country had reached the stage of isolation and embargo was precisely because sanctions were imposed on them. But this is where, you know, and you, you see, as I was saying before, you, you see a class reconfiguration in a country like Libya across the 90s. And this is where it's very important. Why? Because whereas in the, in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, Libya had, uh, in, had pursued progressive economic policies in the 90s under the pressure of sanctions and geopolitical threat of war, they decide to abandon these progressive policies. As you abandon progressive policies, you create more socioeconomic inequalities while you are under sanctions. So by the time that Libya was out of the sanctions in the 2000s, the, the, the society was way more class stratified than it, than it had been in the 1980s and the 1970s. And the same thing happened in Iraq. So you create the necessary conditions internally and externally to undertake these regime change operations. Thank you so much. So now, this is a question actually I want to hear the answer to, and I'm sure many others as well. When thinking about You've mentioned the internal contradictions of these countries and no country is going to be free from, from problems. When thinking about, let's say what happens in Iran, when thinking about particularly your focus, Gaddafi, mm-hmm. I'm led to believe that, or I now arrive at a position that we can't look at history as a bifurcation between good guys and bad guys, mm-hmm. as if to say it's a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> but then what I do think about them how should we think about figures like Gaddafi, who, again, I know there's a lot of misinformation anyway about these figures, or when we think about Mugabe, or even historically Sekultura and Kwame Nkrumah, mm. the usual tropes of these were dict- dict- dictators, authoritarian, they hampered down or clamped down quite heavily on people against their own people, etc., etc. Mm. I know that's a very difficult question. I know we cannot answer it and give it justice, but maybe just share your thoughts. Mama, thanks. Uh, for, uh, thank you both, actually, for these questions. So there is a tendency, you know, and uh, I saw this happening uh, it, 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 in, uh, in the scholarship on Libya, for example, the academic scholarship on Libya. But then when you start looking uh, at the resources, uh, at sources like the, archival, the archives of the CIA or the U.S. State Department, you realize that there is actually an alignment between what academia is saying and what the state and what the state department is saying which does not translate necessarily into every academic is a cia agent but you know you have to start questioning certain things so one thing that is constantly done to undermine the any progressive uh, political project which is which goes beyond the figure of, uh, say, Muammar Gaddafi or Kwame Nkrumah is to personify the, the, the political project. So immediately, and this is where it is so important to proceed differently, to understand history through a dialectical project, through Marxism, through the historical materialist tradition, because men and leaders are important elements in the you know in the in the in the formation of certain political projects but it's always the weight of history that counts the personification is done precisely to create a gap 
And again, it's part of this ideological war to create a gap between, oh, this is what the leader is is saying, but this is not what the people want. So we intervene to create that kind of friction right there. But when we look at all these leaders that you were mentioning, they they all came about in a certain historical moment, which was a moment of decolonization where countries from Africa and Asia, it was a tide, it was a wave. It wasn't just one single figure or one mad dog, as uh, Ronald Reagan used to call Gaddafi at the time. So this is very important. Why? Because uh, it means then that we need to approach differently the way we understand politics. We cannot just look at what that leader has said or that figure has said. We need to always have what uh, I would call a structural approach. We need to see how history changes, how this big uh, geo-economic and political structure affect the decision of certain leaders. And I think this is where, you know, an an unfortunate but very well done job was done in the case of Muammar Gaddafi, where each and every single choice that the Libyan leader was trying to pursue were per- constantly personified on its, uh, you know, on its persona to the point that it created a cult of Gaddafi. To the point that in 2011, right after you know it was brutally murdered, some French journalists came up with a book about how Gaddafi was uh, raping women in the in the basement of his own villa, like uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, was doing in Syria. This is utter nonsense. It's nonsense. But it's this kind of uh, Hollywoodization of politics, which I have to say, American, uh, Americans love it. But it's, uh, you know, it probably speaks to the level of American politics as well. Okay, so I believe this will be the last question. And in the spirit of thinking about dialectically, I kind of wanted to shift things about agency uh, under imposed economic sanctions, because we've we've talked a lot about sanctions as an imposed economic condition, but I don't believe like history of a particular country or history within an international sense can be characterized simply by uh, imposition by dominating powers, but Mm -hmm. also resistance and the agency of of nations Mm -hmm. and their people. So I guess Mm -hmm. I, I want to end on what then is done in the face of sanctions, both historically yeah. and what should be done in the face of sanctions going forward, seeing that, you know, at least in the financial sense, U.S. hegemony is being challenged and in decline as we are seeing, you know, a move towards multipolarity. Well, if you accept that, yeah. Thanks, Christian. No, it's a, it's a very important question because uh, there is agency. The question is the way we come to understand what is agency. If we are to understand agency as the power of the single individual facing alone the weight of history and the imposition of sanctions, that is not agency for me. And this is what the capitalist liberal system wants to tell us. Wear what you want. Eat what you want. Do whatever you want. That for the global south and for the country that historically have been under the thumb and the weight of imperialism and colonialism is not agency. Agency requires a political project, a structural project that is bigger and way more powerful than the actions of the single individual. So let's look historically at what, for example, the forms 
of of uh, we could call anti-imperialist projects or agency if you want that were undertaken by certain countries and we can speak on the past and the present libya in libya under un sanctions from the 1990s up to the 2000s starting to repair and to construct alliances with states with african states in doing so one of the projects was the launch of the organization of african unity which then became the african union and as we know now one of the projects that uh, the Libyan leadership and the Libyan government had in mind, thanks to WikiLeaks and thanks to the work, I have to say, of Julian Assange, who's still brutally detained by the US and, and Britain in prison, and this is shameful on any West, on Western governments. What we know is that Lib- the Libyan government was putting an, um, aside an amount of uh, was putting aside an amount of uh, gold reserves in order to build or to propose a project for a common African currency. Now, the idea of having a common African currency is revolutionary. It's really a form of agency that can can counter imperialism and the imposition of economic sanctions. That is from a Global South perspective. And similarly, what we are seeing nowadays as for the readers that they don't know, all international financial transactions take place through the, up to, you know, very recently, they took place through the SWIFT. Now, the SWIFT is a society for worldwide interbank financial telecommunications through which most international money and security transfers take place. It's just, it's like a messaging network, you know, and uh, financial institutions use it to you know, to send and receive information about money transfer quickly, securely, and most of the of the of uh, of financial transaction used to take place through this system, which is based where in Belgium, okay, in a Western European country. Now, the moment, for example, a country like Russia is blocked from using the SWIFT, you would think that the Russian economy is going to go down. But this is where a form of agency comes up to face sanctions, which is what? The creation of alternative systems to make financial transactions, like the chips, the the Chinese one, the cross-border interbank payment system, or the Russian SPFS, the System for Transfer of Financial Messages. So these are key moments as we will look at the course of history and as we move forward and we will look at the past, that we will recognize them as moments where the de-dollarization has been, you know, was moving forward. And in a way, the Libyan government back then with this, with this project of African unity was contributing heavily to the multipolar project that we can now see much more than we could see back in the 2000s. So... These are certainly forms of agency that we can uh, we can look, we can materially understand, and they are way more powerful of the single individual acts. So it is imp- always important to understand agency, according to me, in terms of uh, what are the organizational capacity structurally that uh, if they cannot counter imperialism themselves, but at least they can raise awareness or uh, they can uh, you know they can challenge a certain institution imperialist institution. So these are very important forms of agency, and these are the ones that we need to understand in order to support. 
Thank you so much. That was truly a masterclass. I've learned so much from this episode. I am asking all the listeners to please engage with our guest's work. I will leave his socials um, and ways to contact um, him. And until next time, peace out. Thank you so much once again. Asalaamu Alaikum.